Well, I'd invite you to open your Bibles with me to the book of Colossians. It's a letter that Paul wrote to a young church in Colossae. We're in chapter 1, and we'll start in uh, verse 15 in a moment. Last week, we talked about the uh, section just before that, and Paul was overjoyed. He was thanking God for a couple things that had taken place in this young church in Colossae. He was first and foremost uh, grateful and thankful that God's uh, gospel message, the seed of that, had been planted amongst them and had the plant of that message had taken root. And not only was there a plant growing, but they were already starting to uh, show some fruit. Uh, One that he specifically pointed out was that they were learning to love each other. And he said, that can only be of God, to have all of you from such disparate places come together in the bond of love and unity. He was also uh, thankful and overjoyed that not only were they um, growing this plant of the gospel message, but they were beginning to witness. They were beginning to share it with the people around them. And we talked a little bit that their hope was um, staked in what was ahead for them in heaven, but they also realized that heaven wasn't just something that, was, that happened after you die, but when, when you become a follower of Jesus, the eternal life that's promised actually begins now because you go to the cross and you have an experience with Jesus and your life is transformed and, and you leave differently. And so Paul was thankful and joyous that they figured out or they had this understanding that they were little slices of heaven. They were conduits between heaven and earth as they went out and they ministered to the people around them. Part of the passage was that uh, Paul was praying that they would have a spiritual wisdom and understanding of God's will. Part of Paul's prayer was that they would find strength and endurance and patience along the way. And Paul's prayer was that they would just continue to be filled with joy about what's going on. And all of that, Paul says, is possible because of the redemptive work of Jesus the work that he did on the cross, his dying and sacrificing his own life, shedding his own blood so that they might be forgiven, that we might be forgiven. That's a little bit about what we talked about last week. And we get to this place in Colossians 1, and it is a, the first six verses that we read are this grand, this glorious poem that Paul writes on the supremacy of, of Christ. And this is not something that we can read sitting down. So I would invite the, the, you to stand with me as we, as we read this passage. I'm going to read verses 15 uh, through 23 uh, this morning. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. 
He made the things we can see and all the things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else, and he holds all creation together. Christ is also the head of the church, which is his body. He is the beginning, supreme over all who rise from the dead. So he is first. So he is first in everything. For God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ, and through him God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. This includes you, who were once far away from God. You were his enemies, separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions. Yet now he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. As a result, he has brought you into his own presence, and you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. But you must continue to believe this truth and stand firmly in it. Don't drift away from the assurance you received when you heard the good news. The good news has been preached all over the world, and I, Paul, have been appointed as God's servant to proclaim it. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. Well, uh, four years, actually four thousands of years, since Jesus walked the face of this earth and gathered a group of disciples and bound them together, and after he uh, died and was resurrected and ascended into heaven, the disciples uh, were instructed to stay together and to wait for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And in the beginning chapters of Acts, we read that that's exactly what they, they were doing, that they were gathered in a room and they were praying and the Holy Spirit came upon them. And we say that that is like the launching point of the church of Jesus Christ. Ever since that point, Ever since those disciples spilled out and Peter preached that magnificent sermon there in Acts chapter 2, ever since then, people have started to be skeptical, to be critical, to try and dismantle the message that's out there. Paul has just laid out beautifully this supreme um, magnificent picture of Christ, and ever since uh, those words have been spoken, there have been people out there who try and shrink Jesus. People that are out there try and uh, take the image that we are given of Christ and make it much smaller. And Paul is addressing this in the church in Colossae. There are people in their culture who, when they talk about Jesus, this Jesus person who has done all of these wonderful things for them, there are people like, ah, you know what, that's good. He was probably a, a good moral teacher, a prophet maybe, a, a genuinely good guy. He helped a lot of people. But to have a picture that large, that's, that's probably too big. You, know, you, need, to, you need to get a dose of reality and bring this Jesus down to a size that's a little bit more manageable. See, you know, Jesus isn't all you need 
to be fulfilled and, and satisfied in this world. You, you need a whole lot of other things. Ever since these words were spoken, there are people out there who are trying to shrink Jesus down to a more manageable size and convince you, convince us, convince this church here that Jesus was, was only just a small part of the whole package. And Paul is not, Paul's not having any of this. You know, humans, we have this tendency to think that what we do is really grand. Like, we're big stuff. You know, we build things, we create things, we have this technology. I mean, all the way back into the Old Testament, the people tried to build this tower. We call it the Tower of Babel because, you know, it didn't end up going so well for them. But hey, we want to build stuff all the way up to the sky so we can be like the gods. And we look around and, wow, we are really something. You know what I'm talking about. <clears throat> well, you know, sometimes in life, you get a, a glimpse of just how small you are. I, <laughs> every time that I fly, I get, a, I get a glimpse of just how minuscule everything that we do, who, everything that we think we are is just a drop in the bucket. You know, you're in the chair and, you know, it's, I, I'd rather be on the aisle because it just seems like there's a little bit more room. But when I'm, when I'm over by the window, I just love just staring right out the window and seeing what's out there. And so the, you know, the pilot guns it, puts you back in your seat, and that's, I love the rush of that. And then, you know, the plane takes off, and, and you get to, you know, 500 feet and 1,000 feet, and, and already the airport looks like a toy. And you get up to, you know, 5,000, 10,000, 20,000 feet, and finally you get up to cruising altitude, and you look out the, the window, and, you know, we're barely ants on the face of this earth. And you get this picture of how big things actually are and how small all of humanity and all the things that we create are just tiny. And that's only in the scope of our planet, our earth, our atmosphere. And you think beyond all of that into the cosmos, into the expanses of the universe... Our earth is only a speck in all of it. And we think that we're just so grand and, and glorious. And, and so it would be easy to take a Jesus person that people knew as one who was a, a Jewish carpenter in the backwater towns of Palestine. And he wandered around and had a, a, an itinerant preaching ministry for a few years, and, and then he was, he was gone, crucified, dead, buried. But we know he was raised to new life. It, it's easy to take that character and say, yeah, you know, he made, a, he made a difference while he was here, but is there any lasting value to all of that? I mean, people just continually try to shrink our view of Jesus down to something that, that we can try and understand, that we can grasp. And, and Paul, in all of this, these first six verses, the only word that I can come up with is, wow! Did you read what Paul just wrote? 
I mean, it's huge, it's immense. If you, if you really let these words sink in and you believe them, it will blow all of the circuits in your mind. Paul is trying to do an impossible task here. He is, uh, he is trying to put into finite human words. So he takes our limited vocabulary, finite words, and he's trying to describe this infinite nature of God. It's, it's an impossible task. You can't do it. He's trying to paint this word picture of the authority, the supremacy, the all-sufficiency of, of Jesus Christ. This immensity, if you will, of God. He's trying to grasp what is impossible to grasp for humans. But the good news is, is that God knows that. God knows that he is bigger than anything that we can understand. He knows our limitations. He knows our weaknesses. And so he came down and he moved into our neighborhood in the person of Jesus Christ so we could have a picture of what God is like. And so Paul is, is going through and he's, he's telling us exactly how big this Jesus person is. He's telling us uh, in Jesus, when you look, when you stare at Jesus, when you, when you look directly into his eyes, when you see his actions and you hear his words, you're getting a, a representation of what God is like. The author of Hebrews, beautiful way to start out uh, a letter. The author of Hebrews speaks it this way. Long ago, God spoke many times and in many ways to our ancestors through the prophets. And now in these final days, he has spoken to us through his son. God promised everything to the son as an inheritance, and through the son, he created the universe. The son, this is the, mo this is the important verse that, that kind of mirrors what Paul has just said in, in Colossians. The son radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character of God. The very character of God. And, this will blow your mind, he sustains everything by the mighty power of his command. Or, or you could say he sustains everything by the mighty power of his word. When he had been when he had cleansed us from our sins, he sat down in the place of honor at the right hand of the majestic God in heaven. Jesus holds everything together. Paul said that. The author of Hebrews says that. Um, how many of you have ever tried to speak something into existence? I mean, we try and, we, we try and speak behavior into our kids. Hey, knock it off. Does it work? Once in a while, we have minimal results. But, you know, wouldn't it be nice if our words had the power like Jesus and we could rid, we could fix up our lives, we could fix our finances, we could have all of our diseases healed? Jesus, with the power of his word, holds the whole universe together. Wow! That blows my mind. And Paul, see... In the, in the way that Paul authors this poem in Colossians, he's, he's reminding us, he, he's reminding us, so Christianity today, 
seems to me like there's a lot of emphasis on Jesus being our friend, Jesus being our buddy. And when, and, and that, is, that is true, but, but when, it's, when it is disconnected from the reality of what Paul has laid out for that Jesus is God, we run into problems. And so what Paul is trying to do is, see, all the way back into the first church, there were people trying to convince these early Christians that you could shrink Jesus down to size. He could just be your friend. He could just be that nice prophet who did a bunch of cool things while he was here, but he's certainly not God. And Paul is reminding them that, yes, Jesus is your friend. He, he says so in his Gospels. But you can't forget that he is also the one in whom God created all things. He spoke all of this into existence. He is the Lord of Lords. He is the supreme commander of the universe. And you can't forget that, is what Paul is telling this early church. Uh, we get to verse 20, and we get the first hint of a problem. Uh, Paul says that through Christ, God reconciled everything to himself. Well, if everything's going well, picture's intact, uh, there's really no need to reconcile anything, right? If it hasn't fallen apart, there's no need to, to reconcile. And so Paul is hinting already that, hey, something happened along the way, and God had to do something about it, and so Jesus is here, and he is the, the reconciler. Something has happened to the perfect picture of, of God's creation. Uh, when you sat down on your chair, you may have sat on a little puzzle piece. Everybody got a puzzle piece? Okay. So, <clears throat> what would happen if I said, let's take all of our puzzle pieces and let's put this puzzle together right here uh, on the, the front step? It, would it go very well? Why not? It's all mixed up, right? Uh, I know some of you are organizers in here, and so you would probably go around and find those people who have the corner pieces, and you'd make a grand attempt at organizing us to get this puzzle done. But there's a couple problems. It's, overwhel it's an overwhelming task. I mean, they're spread all around the room. Um, we don't know if all the pieces are there. We don't know how many pieces it's supposed to be. Every Christmas... Our family likes to get a holiday puzzle. And so usually it's about a thousand pieces and we get it and shake it all up and we dump it out on a table that we can leave up over the season. And it's kind of relaxing, it's kind of fun, it's a festive picture. And so we take turns or we sit around the table together and sort out all of the pieces. But when, when you first turn over that box onto the table and all those pieces spill out, it's a daunting task. It's a little bit intimidating. And the, the only thing, the only thing that keeps us going, outside of the fact that we kind of like the nature of putting puzzles together, the thing that keeps it, us going and um, focused on the project is that we have a picture of the original, right? 
We have a picture of what it is supposed to look like. And if we didn't have a picture of what the end result was supposed to be, I suppose that if given enough time, we could figure it out, and it would be quite surprising if we did. But along the way, we would get extremely frustrated because we would only be going by the, the shapes, and you know how many puzzle pieces have the exact same shape? We'd give up somewhere along the way. And my guess is, Glenn, go ahead and show us that picture. This is the picture of all of the puzzle pieces that, that you're holding. If, if I didn't show you that picture, there, it would be almost impossible for us to gather around and, and put this puzzle together. You see, at one point in this puzzle's life, it was perfect. It was whole. And then the manufacturer put it through whatever machine that it does and, and cut that perfect whole picture up into a bunch of pieces. And they ripped it apart and they put it in a box and shook it and they sent it to Walmart and we got it and I put them on the, the chairs here this morning and so now it's all over the place. It went from that perfect whole picture to a piece that, that you can hold in your hand. Thank, thanks, Glenn. Look at verse 21. The, really what I want to focus in our attention in on for the next few minutes is on verse uh, 21, 22, and 23. And it's kind of sequential in nature. And, and verse 21, it goes like this. You who were once far away from God, you were his enemies, separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions. So Paul has moved from this grand, magnificent, immense, universal picture of, of Jesus, and, and he has brought it right down to a personal nature for this church. He says, this includes you. Now think about it. At one point, God's creation, including humanity, was perfect. God created it, and he said it was good. God created humans, and he said it was very good. At the beginning, when he made his creation, it was good. It was whole. It was perfect according to how he designed and created it. And part of that creation, part of what he gave us as humans was this little thing called free will. And that means that we have a choice on whether we will listen to God or whether we will not. Whether we will obey what he says or, or whether we will go our own direction. Whether we will believe God and trust him or whether we will or we would rather believe and trust all of the things that we can come up with on our own. So there's this little thing that God instilled into creation, in, into humans, this thing called free will. And so what happened was we took God's perfectly designed, perfectly created picture, and we cut it up like a jigsaw puzzle, and we ripped God's picture apart. Because we thought that we could come up with a better image. 
than what God had created. You can read about it in the early part of Genesis. Um, you know the story. Adam and Eve were in the garden. And, and they... God lived in the garden. God walked in the garden with them. They had an unbroken relationship with the creator of the universe. Everything was at their disposal except for one thing. God said, I want to I reserve this. Don't, don't, don't touch this tree over here. And humans are like, huh, man, this creation is awesome. I wonder what it is about that one. And, you know, the devil was right there to, you know, to fan the flame on that one. And, and the devil says, hey, God's just holding out on you over here. You should be able to eat the fruit of this tree as well as any others. You know, God's holding out. If, if you eat, you know what, if you eat the fruit of this tree, then that means you'll be, you'll be like God. So why wouldn't God want that for you? And <clears throat> all the while, the humans are thinking, wow, this creation is awesome. That, that tree, the fruit on that is just so lush. It will, it will, it will improve my status. I, it's, it, I just need it. So they ate the fruit. It, it gives us a picture of the human tendency to want what God creates instead of the creator himself. We, we would rather go after all of the stuff that God creates, and, and what God creates is good. But somehow, throughout the years of Christianity, we've turned what God's created into things that we count as sin. Like, you know, you can take food to an excess. You can take sex to an excess. There's all sorts of ways. And so and we tend to say, well, the creation is bad. You just go for the creator. No, God says the creation is good. What happens in humans is that we would willingly forsake the relationship to get the stuff that God provides through his creation. And so we think that what is created will boost our status and make us better, will satisfy us. More so than the God that we can't see. So the heresy the false teaching that was coming into this church was you can take Jesus and you can shrink him down to size and you can add him to all of these other things and together that's where, you're, where you will find fulfillment and satisfaction. And Paul is trying to remind him, no. At the beginning, when humans had this free will choice, we decided that we would rather come up with an image on our own and so we ripped up God's puzzle and we shook it up and, and therefore it's all out of line, and we end up with, we end up with, uh, with chaos, with this jumbled collection of pieces in our personal lives, in the world, and sometimes in, in our church. Hey, read the Bible, cover to cover. There's stories of how the characters just got the image wrong. David had an issue with lust. Saul, an issue with power and control. Jacob wasn't happy with his birthplace, and st so he stole his brother's birthright. You get, to, you get Joseph and his, his brothers who were jealous and envious of him, and so they sold him into slavery. You get into the pages of the New Testament, and there's this rich young guy who comes to Jesus and says, how do I get in on this kingdom of heaven thing? And Jesus says, well, you've got to follow all the commands, obey the law. And the guy says, I've done that ever since I was yea high. And Jesus 
Jesus says, well, that's great. There's one more thing. You got to take all that you have. You got to sell it and then come and follow me. And the guy's like, oh, no, you can't be serious. Why? Because he wanted to take the kingdom and shrink it down and, and add it to his wealth that he already had. I want, I want my stuff, I want the created stuff, and I want this. And Jesus called him out. You know, we do it in, in our relationships, husbands, wives, co-workers. We let little things that come in and, and we let them tarnish our, you know, whatever we come up with as the perfect image or vision of reality. And, and when, when our spouses or our co-workers or friends do something to tarnish that image, then resentment starts to come in and we get angry and we begin to alienate ourselves from one another over time. Parents, we do this to our kids when we hold up this image of what we think a perfect image of a kid should be. All of the things that we would really want them to invest their time and their energy and, and be really good at. And when it doesn't, when their interests don't line up with the ones that we prefer they have, then sometimes parents, we, we, we get after them and when we harm them. I mean, if you want to get a good picture of this, just go out to any little league field and watch how parents behave in belittling their kids when they, when they don't get the hit or they miss the fly ball. It's embarrassing and it's damaging to these young souls. I mean, all of this, Paul says, there's really good news. Yes, we took God's perfect image and we carved it up into a jigsaw puzzle and, and messed it up and made chaos out of it. But he says there's good news. Look at verse 22. Yet now he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. As a result, he has brought you into his own presence and you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. There's this word reconcile in there to restore or, or bring back a former state of harmony, to, to bring something into harmony. Something that is fractured is now restored or reconciled. I was thinking about this definition, and I, I, wonder, if, I wonder if maybe we could embrace this definition of reconciliation today. I think reconciliation is putting together what belong together. Reconciliation is putting together what belong together. I mean, think about the puzzle. You're, you're holding a piece of it right now. The puzzle, to be perfect and whole, belongs together. And so reconciling this puzzle, it only makes sense when it's all together. So reconciling this puzzle is putting together the pieces that belong together. Now, Scripture gives us a picture of Jesus, a picture of the one who gives coherence to all of the disconnected pieces of the puzzle of this world. In Jesus, everything interlocks. In Jesus, everything finds its purpose. And the biblical word for this is reconciliation, putting together what belongs together. And this is what Jesus does. He puts the puzzle back together. He is the one who came to reconcile. There was this distance between God and humanity, and, and the puzzle was taken apart. 
And at our worst, Paul says we were enemies of God. And in our hostility against God, we put Jesus on a tree and we killed him. Uh, according to the poem that Paul wrote in verses 15 to 20, Jesus was and is the place where the true God and true humanity meet. The cross is where God's self-giving love and the hostility of humanity come together. And this, brothers and sisters, that is the place of reconciliation. He paid the price for your sin so the puzzle can come back together. Look at verse 14. It says, Paul says, uh, he, this is from last week's text, he purchased our freedom. The Greek word there is apolutrosis, which simply means that it is buying the freedom of a slave by paying a ransom. So Jesus buys your freedom. He bought your freedom by dying on the cross. And through this, we are transferred from the kingdom of the world into the kingdom of heaven, into his presence. And now, Paul is saying in our text today, and now when God looks upon us, he sees the righteousness of his son. He doesn't see the sinfulness of, of our being because of what Jesus did on the cross. You don't get this by anything that you do. You only get this because of what God did for you. Because God moved into our neighborhood and lived among us a perfect, sinless human life. He was dead, buried, rose again. Because of that, not anything that you can do. This is what Jesus is doing with the chaos of the world and this jumbled up mess of disconnected pieces of our lives. He's putting our lives back together and he's making them whole. He is restoring the image of himself that was lost in, in the fall. We call it the work of sanctification. When Jesus puts the pieces of our lives back together, yes, he makes this beautiful image, but each day we live into that. Our, our lives are transformed, and so the way that we once lived, we no longer have to live that way. And so he patiently works with us. And Paul prays for patience. He prays for endurance. And he prays that when it's difficult, we would find joy because we see the progress that we're making. We see the work that Jesus is doing in our life to make the image of our lives look like his. There's another definition for the word reconcile. And think about your checkbook. You have a perfect image of one, and you reconcile it against another. And so I would encourage you, along the journey, when you read the pages of Scripture, when you get this perfect image of Jesus, that you take your life, and you line it up against Jesus, and you look for points where you need to be reconciled. And you have to be part of the work. You have to cooperate with God. But the work of reconciliation, Paul says, is the work of Jesus. He is the puzzle master. And he will show you the ways and the places, the pieces that are missing. And he will say, you know what? We can do something about that. Why don't you, why don't you hand me your piece? To, to be reconciled takes surrender. It takes humility. 
It takes relinquishing the pieces and giving them back to Jesus. He'll put them all together. He knows exactly where they go. He's going to make a perfect picture of himself, but if he doesn't have all the pieces, that's going to be a little problem. And so we need to surrender ourselves, get off our high horse of thinking everything that we do is so grand and big and important. And we need to recognize that the picture that God laid out in creation was perfect. It was whole. And we messed it up. And he sent Jesus to show us what that picture looked like originally. He gave us the picture of Jesus, the one who lived a perfect, whole human life. And he says, you can live a life like this through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen? Amen. I want us to pray for a little bit. So I'm going to have our worship team come back and uh, sing through another song. You know, there's, there's part of this. <clears throat> Reconciliation. That... let's just say this, because we can be reconciled with God also means that we can be reconciled with one another. With, without the ability to be reconciled to God, it would be almost impossible to reconcile with one another. It, it's one of those, as I was thinking about it this week, it, it seems like one of those, I, I don't know which comes first, because there's evidence in Scripture that would suggest that it's really hard to be reconciled to God when we have broken relationships around us because our, our spirit isn't right. But then there's also places that I was reading that it suggests that we need to get that primary relationship with God in line first, which opens up our heart and our eyes to see that there are places that we need reconciling. And maybe it can be both. Maybe it can be both. Sometimes our eyes just aren't open and we don't recognize it. And so we needed God to reconcile us so that our eyes are open, our hearts are open to the possibility of forgiving and reconciling people who have wounded us deeply. Other times, I think we get so caught up in our fight, in our anger, in our resistance, that we, when, when God tries to crack into that, our exterior is so hardened that we resist the work of the Holy Spirit in our life. And so that brokenness that we have remains broken, and even though God is saying, hey, why don't you give that over to me? I, I can help you with that. I can pour my love into that. I can work on your heart. But you gotta, you gotta open your, you gotta, you gotta give it to me. So sometimes our brokenness, our anger, our resistance keeps God at bay, and, and so once in a while, we need to get right with God 
and say, okay, whatever it is, I'll give it to you. I imagine, I know, that there are people who are struggling on both of those sides this, here this morning. I would venture to say that maybe every person in some way has a place where they're resisting the work of the Holy Spirit or the picture isn't complete. But there is some brokenness, hurt, anger, resentment that it might just be a little kernel. It might be something that's really big that you just are frustrated by and it's just crusted over and it's keeping the Holy Spirit out. And so I imagine that it would be good to pray about that. It would be good to take these things to the Lord in a time of prayer.